Welcome back to Live Mike on KSL News Radio. I'm Jason Perry, the director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics, helping to co-host today with Morgan Lyon Cotty, also with the Hinckley Institute. Well, uh, many people know that that you and I, Morgan, get to work on the Hinckley Report every week. Talk about the news that is happening around the state of Utah. Uh, and one of our favorite guests is always Spencer Stokes. He's also a great gift giver. He once showed up with a little Lego White House, which is still on the set of that, the Hinkley. That is true. For yeah. the people who are watching that show, look for the, the, the white, Lego White House. You can almost picture Spencer Stokes at home putting that together. Spencer Stokes is a lobbyist and president of Stokes Strategies and just really so well-connected in the state of Utah and beyond. Spencer, thanks for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you. Hey, do you mind? uh, We want to talk about a couple of the things that are happening in uh, in Washington, D.C. right now. But because you're so kind of involved in all the political stories, Morgan, I thought it might be fun just to ask you, what would you consider to be the biggest, most impactful story of the year? (laughs) Well, you're going to remove the pandemic, right? That's not yeah, going to okay, be one after of my, that. Uh, okay. All right. I, I would, I would say uh, this has a, been a pretty historic year in the elect, you know, in the election process. I mean, you have, you had two uh, well-known uh, longtime uh, public servants, Gary Herbert leave after 30 years and six months of continuous elected service to the state from county commissioner to lieutenant governor to governor, which opened up that seat in the governor's seat. And you also had Rob Bishop after 33 years of service. He had a little break in there when he left the house, but, uh, and replacing those two. But I think the pandemic made that even more historic because of the delegates not being replaced. So there were no caucuses, the change in how we gathered signatures uh the governor through executive order allowed it to be done um electronically and and uh sending in your signature and the convention's not occurring in person i would say those three items in my mind for a political hack political hack were probably the biggest things of this year well, Jason, what do, what do you think is the biggest story for you? So I think those those are are true also, but I, I think almost all of the the stories surrounding what's happening on national politics and the impact locally. I, what I really think is just so amazing is people have realized that um, they have to pay attention to who we elect. We find out that that people sometimes we don't know who they are. The ones making the decisions about the most important parts of our lives. Do our kids go to school? Do we get a vaccine? Do we get a stimulus package? These are all someone else. we got to well, pay attention. Uh, that, that does hit home, Jason, this year because of the focus on the pandemic. Um, and come to find out, uh, really, in, in the least among us, if you will, in, in the world of politics, meaning you know, not city council members or county commissioners or mayors or legislators, but come to find out the people who make the decisions on where our, when our kids go to school are local school board members. And uh, I think a lot of people were kind of stunned to find that out, that a superintendent and local school board really can impact their life. I think that's what you're, what you're pointing out, Jason. Yeah, and you have some personal experience with this, right? Because you've served on one of these boards. That it would have been the first time I would have felt like that uh, I had any power had I been on the state school board at this time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but but it's uh, it, you know 
oftentimes day-to-day operations of a school district are kind of uh, mundane and nobody pays attention to them. And but this would have been a this would have been a really interesting time to have been involved. So, uh, and I and I you know I laud the people who take their time and serve at that level of government because it's off, oftentimes a thankless thankless job. But uh, I think in your world, I can't believe you didn't you didn't mention the the fly that landed okay. on <laughs> Donald Trump's head. I mean, I think that that Maybe will actually go down. That will go, or yeah, excuse me, Mike Pence, that will actually go down probably in history as a seminal moment in this particular campaign, just like when George Bush, H.W. Bush, looked at his watch during uh, one debate or Ronald Reagan saying, "I'm pardon me, I paid for this, Mike. I mean, the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head at the University of Utah will be, I think, forever one of the top 10 uh, of this presidential cycle. I have to say, I was sort of proud of that fly moment because if everybody's talking about a fly, then it means that the debate was what it was supposed to be, a boring policy discussion, which is what we want our debates to be, right? Actually learning about the issues and how candidates feel about things. Well, what I've been saying is that that was actually an animatronic fly that the people at the Hinckley Institute, uh, you know, created. So, well, I, I have to, that may or may not be true. I have to say, just because we got Spencer knows about all these things, just just a fun fact for our listeners out there that you wouldn't know, and it's a little bit of a theory I have on the fly, because pe- people may not know this, but there are very specific requirements about uh, you know all the facilities. One of those is that you have to have a vent above each one of the candidates, and it has to stay at a certain temperature so we don't see any of these candidates sweat, you know, no matter how hot well, it yeah. gets. So I think that was part of the problem. I think it was so cold blowing out of one of those vents that the fly landed and couldn't move. Well, or there was so much lacquer in on that oh, hair. Yes. That he couldn't get out the fly he or she. I don't know. We haven't done. Did you ever get to the bottom of that? I mean, did anybody ever find the remains of that fly uh, on campus? No, he escaped. Just lives in our memory now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been it's been in the world of politics, as I mentioned, for people involved in politics. This has been a very memorable year, and it continues to be memorable. I mean, there's one thing you know of a Donald Trump presidency. Um, it's always going to be interesting. He leaves town. Uh, the COVID relief package was passed, which had a lot of other things in it as well. Um, uh, I got a, a text message from Senator Lee a couple of days ago who told me that uh, the the COVID relief bill, the 5,000-plus page bill, had decriminalized the wearing of a 4-H uh, logo. And... Um, so he wanted me – he knew I was involved in 4-H. He wanted me to make sure that I knew I could now start wearing any of my, you know, uh, non-official 4-H patches anywhere I wanted without, you know, fear of reprisal. Um, <laughs> so Finally. you been waiting for town. this moment. Yes, yeah. But President Trump leaves town, doesn't sign it, says he wants to, wants to go from $600 to 2000 uh, and so we're now going to have a very interesting, uh, you know, time between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, as you know, everybody left town for for Christmas, and uh, 
I'm sure they'll all be back on the 29th, I think, is when they're planning on going back into session to see uh, what else they, they need to do. So that's pretty fascinating because that doesn't happen often. Usually when Congress recesses, they don't come back until after the new year or swearing in or inauguration day. So uh, he's really – and, you know, you can assign whatever you want to that saying – well, this is a way for Donald Trump to say, you know, give a bigger gift to the American people uh, in a larger check um, or just to create a little more, a little extra drama um, the last during uh, this holiday season. Hey, Spencer, we've got about 10 seconds left. So just give us your prediction. Does this thing get passed with the $2,000 oh, yeah. or stay at six? Uh, I think it stays at six, but look for a supplemental to come along that the Democrats will vote on as a standalone bill. All right. Very good. Spencer, it's always great getting your insight. You're so well connected. We just appreciate your friendship and uh, and your willingness to be on the show today. Happy holidays. See you. All right. Before we leave, you're going to want to stay tuned for our, our next segment here. Natalie Gochner, the director of the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute, is going to talk to us about the COVID relief package. What does it mean for the country? What does it mean for the state of Utah? Stick around. Well, welcome back to KSL. We're so glad to be with you. I'm Morgan Lyoncotti with the Hinckley Institute. And Jason Perry, also with the Hinckley Institute of Politics. So glad to be with you today. Man, Morgan, some really interesting conversations so far today. But... What's on our mind, what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now is just so important. The COVID relief package is being discussed in our House and our Senate. New dynamics at play with President Trump uh, pushing uh, that the stimulus funds to going out from $600 to 2000 Just so curious how this is going to impact our state and our country. And no better person to talk about that than the great Natalie Gochner, the director of the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute. Natalie, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, uh, Jason and Morgan. You always make me smile, Jason. You're you're too kind to me. <laughs> well, uh, we, we've come to consult with the Oracle. Tell us what's happening here uh, with this with this relief package in Washington D.C. Well, uh, the most important part is this is just in time. Notwithstanding this little current debate about the you know direct spending to uh, each uh, person in our country, but our economy had continued to contract uh, in Utah. November to November, we were down in jobs. And our leisure and hospitality sector is still down 19,000 jobs in the state. And so when you have an economy in a tough time like this that's either moving sideways or sagging, you you need to act. And this is what I'm going to call a large, targeted, and refined stimulus. And I think it's very important for both our nation and our country, our, our nation and our state. What do you what are you hearing or seeing in terms of these negotiations? Because one of these issues uh, is what President Trump was calling some of the the needless spending, but it's really the high level thing we're talking about is the amount of money that's going to come to the people who need it in the country. Uh, what are you hearing about that, and to what kind of impact? Well, it's a time, Jason and Morgan, when you can't let uh, perfect be the enemy of the good, and we need this. Um, you know, the, the discussion about whether it's a $600 payment or a $2,000 payment, that is one thing. But there's so much else in this legislation. I mean, there's an expansion and extension of unemployment insurance through March 14th of the new year, $300 more per week. It reinstates the Paycheck Protection Program, which helps small businesses, companies with 300 or fewer employees that have had a 25% drop in revenues. Really important there. And then it provides money for nutrition assistance, rental assistance, transportation, schools, health care, child care, broadband. 
it's big, uh, and it's absolutely the right thing to do at a time when uh, people are hurting in this country. Natalie, with it being so big, um, we even saw Senator Mike Lee standing in front of a printer with it coming out and talking about how big it is and how it seems rushed. I always wonder when we see elected officials or politicians do that because, yes, it comes out and they are expected to vote quickly, but how much you know input did they have going into this? Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you feel about the process of it all? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to start way back uh, early summer, Morgan. We had the first stimulus that amounted in Utah to a $12.7 billion injection in Utah's economy. That's about 22% of our GDP. So it's just an absolute huge um, you know, influx of money. And, and it helped us. It helped uh, forestall uh, more unemployment. It helped small businesses. It helped families and people in the state. And keep in mind, the pandemic was nobody's fault. Like Nobody did anything wrong that's been hurt by this. And so that's largely gone. And you asked me to comment on the process. And all I would say is we've, uh, we've been in this at this nine months. And it's my hope that Congress in that nine months found some way to find agreement. And here we've got something to work with. And it's not perfect, but it will certainly help. And it will, it will you know, create a bridge to widespread vaccinations, which is the real solution to this problem. Well, so this is something you've referred to before, Natalie. I'm, I'm hoping you can maybe explain this a little bit about how this stimulus is, that economic bridge to the vaccine. Explain how that works and how you see it playing out. In our state, what will happen is payments will be made to our state, both directly to businesses, directly to people, but also, you know, money that can be used uh, broadly for schools, um, we know in this bill, for instance, that there's $21 million for the Central Utah Project. There's $48 million to help remove uranium from Moab. Uh, of course, there was the, the $2 billion in capital investments that will help with bus rapid transit in Ogden and Provo. So what happens is this money comes, and we take it, and then it creates more activity in our state. It's all borrowed money. It has to be paid back. It's, it's, it's really rough that, that we're in the situation we're in, but it's better than not having it. And so I see it as a bridge to the point where we finally have vaccinations and we're finally on our way to getting this behind us. But until then, we need help. I have a slightly different question for you, Natalie. So earmarks, okay. they get a really bad reputation. People talk about mm-hmm. how it's just pork barrel and it's for pet projects. But some people are trying to bring them back and saying that it would actually help us get rid of some of the dysfunction in Washington because, you know, if you want to get a budget passed, you can help out somebody, you know, the senator from Alabama who needs some economic stimulus money or a project there. I want to hear, as Jason said, you're the oracle, you're the economic expert. (laughs) What is your take on that? And do you think that it could help D.C. work a little better? Yeah, well, I mean, I think these things ebb and flow. They get out of you know, they get out of control and then you bring them back. But I think a far better, a far bigger problem for this country and for our economy than earmarks is dysfunction in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, when I look at the earmarks, at least for our state that are included, it's really positive. We have full funding of payment and of taxes for rural Utah. Rural Utah deserves that, you know, for the federal lands that are in those counties. And so I, I guess I would just say that I'm one of those that likes to work in the productive middle. And uh, I like to take best ideas from the right and the left. And in this case, we've got a stimulus bill that takes care of our needs, that provides a bridge to the end of this pandemic, and we ought to get it done. 
One of the uh, hallmarks of the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute that you run is that legislators contact you to look at the issues that are most pressing for the state of Utah. And they come to you for policy advice. You you don't direct them what to do. You give counsel about best practices. What are a couple of those issues that you've been asked to look at that you're helping to help chart the course for the state of Utah? Well, right high on the list is housing affordability, Jason, in our state. Um, We have a housing shortage that's creating more housing price appreciation. We had net in-migration again. Over 20,000 more people moved into our state than moved out. And we've got to figure out how do we make homeownership more affordable in our state. And so that's one area that the legislature is looking for a lot of assistance. And I'll point to one other would just be what do we do about this? This recovery is a K-shaped recovery. Some people are doing better than others. So the bottom side of that K uh, these are people that are in public education that haven't been able to get their schooling done at the you know quality that they would like, and we've got to find ways to help um, people in Utah that have been severely hurt with uh, student-centered learning and needs-based funding. So those are two areas that uh, right now we're working on. Well, what kind of tools does the state have to help with those particular areas? You know, in in needs-based funding, we have a formula that funds education in our state, and uh, you can actually adjust that formula to deal with uh, students in economic distress. So that's one example is just uh, the way that we allocate funding. On uh, housing affordability, it's everything from helping local governments make, uh, you know, land-use choices that uh, provide for affordability to helping with uh, grants and assistance for uh, lower-income Utahns and preserving our housing stock so that we can you know, preserve uh, affordable units in our state. So there's just one, one final question I have because it's connected to these items you've already been discussing. You've, you've also been helping to talk about ways to help in rural Utah and the places where the economy needs a little bit of a push to some extent. Right. I think that this will be the decade for rural Utah. That's just my own thinking. It's in part because of what's just happened with remote work. And the fact that we've learned how to work productively from home, I think that will be a major advantage to rural Utah. I also think uh, our governor-elect will make uh, rural Utah a huge focus. And I think it's in the interest of urban Utah for rural Utah to to thrive and do better. All sorts of interesting energy investments and things that can be done. So uh, I look for rural Utah to have a really um, groundbreaking decade. I hope we can be a part of that at the University of Utah, helping to make that happen. Well, I have no doubt that you will be, Natalie. Thank you for your great insights today and keeping track of these things. It has a huge impact and glad to know you have a steady hand in the wheel. Thanks for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for joining us for Live Mike today. Uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, you're going to listen to Lee Lonsberry doing an interview about the COVID-19 vaccine. It's going to be a very interesting segment. Please come back. Glad to have you with us.